Would you be shocked to know that one of the leading causes of death in young people is all in their heads? Hi, I'm Joel Moutre, and you're listening to the Learn and Share podcast. In today's episode, I talk with Dr. Neil Nedley about the challenging problem of depression and much more. Dr. Nedley, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, well, thank you. It's great being here, Joel. It's, uh, it's, it's, a blessing to have you because you have a lot of experience and expertise in the area of mental health development. You're a doctor, you're a published uh, author and, you know, articles and research, etc. Um, there's a quote that fascinates me that says that our first duty to God and man is self-development. And that's what I want to talk about today is the Christian and mental health and self-development. There's a lot of worldly philosophies and there's also biblical philosophies. Um, and we just want to learn practically as, as well as being inspired, what we as Christians, the young person, the young adult, what we can do, et cetera. So starting off with that, why is it important for the Christian to be even thinking about, no pun intended, mental health and IQ, EQ, et cetera, and to be intentional to maybe even grow that and to, and to uh, cultivate that? Well, the only area that God can really influence us is actually through our brain. And so if our brains are mechanically flawed or faulty, or if our software is faulty, um, it's actually going to, to limit our ability to glorify him. And that is, you know, the overall purpose is having our priorities straight and glorifying God. And if we are going to do that, we do need to be very intentional on optimizing our brain and having that brain working as well as it possibly can. I, I really like that answer. And I, I think, you know, the, it, our brain is our greatest asset, even just in practical life, but not only that, but in the spiritual life as well. Our brain is really the antenna that picks up God's voice. Exactly. And that's really the difference of why, you know, of what God meant when he said, let us make man in our image. You know, this is, we have a frontal lobe that is far larger than any other creature, which gives us the ability to accomplish um, creative things, to accomplish, you know, advanced planning and destiny, um, things along those types of lines, our analytical abilities, our, our ability to plan way in advance and multi-stepped. You don't see that in any other creatures. I mean, some creatures that have better frontal lobes than others like dogs might be able to plan three steps ahead. Uh, and that's, you know, that amazes the, the veterinarians uh, and the, the animal um, lovers that they're able to do that, those type of plannings. But we can plan, you know, uh, well over 100 steps ahead <clears throat> because of our frontal, if our frontal lobes are working well. And uh, that gives us all sorts of creative um, and amazing abilities, as well as abilities to be able to empathize with others and to be able to um, help others um, in ways that other creatures just never would be able to. What are some do's and don'ts when it comes to mental health? I mean, uh, there's obvious things like drugs, et cetera, that are don'ts. And what are some practical things just right off the bat that you can mention that would affect someone's mental health as a Christian? Well, anything that's going to suppress this front portion of your brain, uh, that's the area that we've already started to discuss. And there's a lot of things out there um, that humanity participates in that actually intentionally suppresses um, this area of our brain. 
And this is the area where willpower is centered. It's the area where empathy is centered. It's the area where our breaks, appropriate breaks on human behavior are um, so that we don't cross the line and do um, things that are really, you know, not only foolish, but will hurt us in the long run. And so, you know, alcohol uh, adversely affects the frontal lobe before it affects any other portion of the brain. Um, marijuana actually is a frontal lobe suppressant and our country is endorsing it because it makes people feel more peaceful, but at what cost? Um, you know, and, 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 and it is addictive. I can tell you from our programs, you know, we run depression and anxiety recovery programs and a lot of people think this is the natural way of improving depression and anxiety, but this is one of those short-term gain, long-term problems because if we suppress the frontal lobe, this is the area that we need to have enhanced in order to eradicate depression and anxiety. Uh, just about any mental health condition um, starts out with frontal lobe suppression as front and center, and you'll see it on the PET scans, you'll see it in any way that you can analyze it on the, on the spec scans, what look at activity and circulation of the frontal lobe. And so we don't want to participate voluntarily in anything that's going to suppress this area of our brain, particularly selectively. And uh, so this would include opioids, it would include benzodiazepines, it would include even certain forms of recreation, certain forms of music, um, certain um, foods even can uh, have a subtle effect on suppressing the frontal lobe. Even nicotine uh, is being vaped at, uh, at record levels uh, now uh, by young people actually as a frontal lobe suppressant, not as bad as alcohol. Uh, you know, and so a lot of people say, hey, well, you know, it might be better than alcohol as far as the brain is concerned. But, you know, it, it kind of disturbs me that humanity, particularly our young people, are fascinated by things that have both benefits and risks. Uh, caffeine is one of those. You know, caffeine actually blocks the adenosine receptors in the frontal lobe of the brain. It does stimulate you. Um, but, you know, typists, for instance, can type a little bit faster under the influence of caffeine, but they make 10 times as many errors because it's what it's doing to the adenosine receptors. Uh, and we now know that in, in even sports, you know, quarterbacks, it turns out they're the only player on an NFL field that requires an intact frontal lobe to be successful uh, on that field, but they do far better with zero caffeine. Um, Tom Brady never consumes caffeine, and that's why attempted murder can be going on all around him, but his emotions are stable, and he makes the right decision with the ball. Uh, I like that attempted murder. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it actually appears to be that way. <laughs> it's a violent sport, and they're really trying to take him down. Uh, but nonetheless, um, a, a lot of people advocate caffeine because of so, the so-called benefits, but at what risk? But there are so many other things. You know, we've named a lot of things that suppress the frontal lobe. There are so many things that enhance the frontal lobe that have zero risk, only benefits. And there's, you know, a huge list of those, but yet humanity isn't fascinated with those. You know, the fact that they help and they don't have risks, um, they tend not to be discussed at all. Uh, but yet uh, God has given us so many things that can be enhancing for our frontal lobe and can help with our own self-development. 
uh, that if we focus in on those many more choices that can be made in that area, uh, we can really start participating in, in what God would really have us do, and that is to glorify him. What are some examples of those uh, good things? Just give us a few. Blueberries. <laughs> you know, blueberries have anthocyanins in them, and they actually go selectively to the memory and the frontal lobe aspects of the brain. You'll be able to actually see the blue pigment uh, selectively be taken up and uh, this actually helps our brain's analytical ability. It helps our ability to focus and concentrate. Uh, other antioxidants uh, can have this effect. Um, even turmeric has been shown to be helpful, very potent antioxidant, uh, and it's something that can really um, help the, the brain. And it, go, it goes beyond um, food items. I mean, we can, speaking of other food items, um, you know, foods that are high in tyrosine and tryptophan, pumpkin seeds, you know, for instance, are great for the frontal lobe of the brain. But it goes beyond that to, um, you know, music, uh, box music that was written for the period of the Reformation uh, actually was very frontal lobe enhancing. And it's been shown that when we listen to Bach's even Brandenburg Concerto, the frontal lobe will start lighting up. And it not only lights up during the time, but it stays enlightened for quite a period of time afterwards. And a lot of people are only interested in the effects of music when it's being listened to. But I'm far more interested in the after effects of music uh, after we quit listening to it and what's going on with the brain. And there's great music that can enhance that frontal lobe for a long period of time afterwards. I really like that. Music is such a hot topic. Uh, we're not going to necessarily get into that, but that's fascinating thinking about it's just like entertainment versus recreation. If, if, you know, entertainment is something that benefits you or you seems like it benefits you right away, whereas recreation recreates and it has long lasting positive effects on the user or the listener. Exactly. I want to, I want to touch on this right here because you mentioned frontal lobe a lot. I know what that means, but mm -hmm. obviously you know what that means more than I do. And maybe the listener might or might not know at all. Mm -hmm. um, we, you mentioned that so many times there's the frontal lobe. There's other parts of the brain. You also mm -hmm. have the one back here in the neck, which I don't know the name of. Yeah, the occipital lobe. In and the there's cerebellum. Yeah, in the spiritual world, we call this referred to as the higher and the lower powers and passions, etc. Mm -hmm. Maybe tie this into maybe even sin and how this works and why the frontal lobe is so important to help control and to decide practically yeah. as well as spiritually. Well, our, our lower brain, uh, what we call the, the limbic system, and that's kind of the center and lower aspect of the brain is where we have implanted desires. So this is our desires for food, our desires for sex, our desires for, um, you know, uh, all sorts of things, friendship, um, love, um, you know, companionship, uh, and um, there's, um, you know, even desires for tactile touching types of things. Uh, those are all lower brain type functions and they're there for a good reason um you know the reason why god implanted those desires in us is we could be so focused doing great things that we could forget to eat you know for weeks would that be healthy for us no that would be very unhealthy and so these are kind of little bells that are going off in our brains after we've gone a certain period of time that you know you're you're hungry now and that's a good thing but when we're hungry that's our lower brain that's telling us this. But when that hunger signal goes upstream to our frontal lobe, 
we now have a choice. If our frontal lobe is working well, we have a choice if we're going to eat. We might decide that we're going to actually fast um, because that can actually be good for the brain. You know, 17-hour fasts, even 24-hour fasts might be something occasionally that can be good for the brain. Or we can decide um, when we're going to eat. We can decide what we're going to eat. We're going to decide where we're going to eat and maybe even who we're going to eat with. These are all frontal lobe choices, and those are, can be very great choices if we have a balanced brain that is telling us the right thing. So we are going to decide to eat blueberries, for instance, and kale and, and antioxidants and turmeric and those type of things. Those are frontal lobe choices uh, that will end up um, causing us a lot of, of good happiness and pleasure as well as productivity uh, in those sorts of things. So the frontal lobe, we could call it the thinking portion of the brain. And so where our desires are at is not really a thinking portion uh, per se. Those desires are implanted in us. But those desires were always meant to be controlled by a balancing force called the thinking portion of the brain that got implanted in humanity. That's really, really fascinating. I think that's powerful because as Christians, we're always trying to do God's will and to follow him and being hungry and having a desire for relationship, et cetera, is not bad at all. There was a God given things. Exactly. And many times we suppress them as though they're bad. In reality, they should be controlled through the power of the Holy spirit and the frontal lobe. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. That's powerful. Exactly. That's powerful. Let's talk about the hot topic, uh, and unfortunately very sad topic of depression. Uh, you run depression recovery programs. I have many friends that have been through your programs and have experienced great, great results. And it's a, it's a blessing to have my friends yeah. uh, healthy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I appreciate that. Well, great. But many times when I was uneducated on the topic of depression, I would say things like, because I've been discouraged. You know, I, wouldn't, I, I don't think I've been de clinically depressed, but I know that for sure I've many times said, oh, we just need to trust God's promises more. We need to have more faith. Um, is that true or is there actually like a medical legitimate what is depression and are there different aspects to it is it a sin to is it is just a, is it that we're just discouraged or yeah well and depression is a constellation of symptoms um and that's the way it's diagnosed in america through the psychiatric bible's definition that i stick with but you have to have five of nine symptoms in order to have depression and discouragement or feelings of hopelessness or feeling down, depressed, um, sad, deep sadness, those type of things. That's only one or two areas of those symptoms. Apathy is also a symptom, and that's where you wake up in the morning and you're not excited about the day. You get up out of a sense of duty and responsibility, but not interest. And that can happen maybe once in a while to anybody, but if it happens the majority of the time, that is distinctly abnormal. You also can lose focus and concentration. Um, your weight and appetite can have significant changes. Sleep disturbances are common where you're either having insomnia or early morning awakening, where you wake up too early and can't go back to sleep, or you are wanting to sleep too much and sleep in the daytime. Uh, fatigue, lack of energy, um, feel, and then feelings of worthlessness, and it can start affecting the thoughts where you start having morbid thoughts, thoughts about um, death or preoccupation with death or symbols of death. And so when we add up all of those um, symptoms, there's nine of them. If you have five of nine, that's the definition of major clinical depression. So is major clinical depression always a sign that you are outside of God's will? Uh, no. Uh, you can have someone who is 
part of God's will and has not done anything wrong and still have five or six or even seven of those symptoms. You know, Elijah was one of those individuals. Elijah did nothing wrong and he didn't have a sense of pride and self-sufficiency like some others did that got into depression like Saul. Uh, Now, it it is true that sinful behavior can lead to depression. Uh, Saul is an example of that. I think Solomon is an example of that as well. Solomon suffered severe depression. But um, Elijah is an example, as well as others, um, that had depression where they were people of faith. Uh, But they still uh, ran into biochemical issues as well as thought issues. It's normally the combination of those two that help bring it about. When you say biochemical issues, please explain. Well, that has to do with chemistry of the brain. So sometimes our, our brain may not have enough serotonin. It may not be making enough. It may not be making enough dopamine or norepinephrine. And uh, I think, you know, Elijah did have some issues with that because, you know, the Lord put him on a depression recovery program and he tried trying to get him out into the light, light actually through our eyes. Um, we were able to make more serotonin. Uh, and uh, he was wanting him to be on the right food. Angels came and fed him food. I think there was probably some flaxseed uh, in that meal, you know, high in tryptophan, omega-3, those types of things. Um, he got him exercising. Uh, but then after he was working on his biochemistry, he then started working on his thoughts. And that's the pattern of the reason why our program's so successful. We work first on the biochemistry, and when the biochemistry starts to improve, then we start looking at the thoughts and the software. And he started asking Elijah some questions, and Elijah started revealing some distortions in his thoughts. So even godly people can have distortions in their thoughts, and one of those distortions that he kept repeating is, I'm the only one that hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. <clears throat> you know, what he should have said is, I'm the only one I know of, but instead he just knew that he was the only one. And God had to, uh, after he said it the second time, that's when God stopped him and says, you know, Elijah, you're wrong by a factor of 7,000. Not just a little bit wrong. (laughs) He was uh, quite a ways wrong. Uh, And uh, God started working with him to correct what we call overgeneralization. This is one of the distorted thoughts that will lead to depression. Uh, And he had some mental filters and he had some other things. And God, being the wonderful counselor, Um, helped him to be able to participate in not only correct thinking, but then activities that helped him recover from depression. God told him to do three things that Elijah didn't want to do. And I can tell you when people come to our program, it often gets down to the three things they don't want to do as to whether they're going to get better or not. And are they going to trust the process and do those three things? And Elijah, even though he didn't want to do them, he said, you know what, God's telling me to do it. I think I think I ought to just go ahead and do it. And not only did he recover from depression, he ended up establishing the school of the prophets. He ended up being translated without seeing death, which tells us that God has a lot of sympathy and compassion for those that have mental illness because this is the person that, that was translated without seeing death as someone who had major clinical depression. That's really encouraging, and I, I think it's fascinating. I've, I've read that story so many times, but I never thought of it in the context of mental depression. I knew that he was discouraged. Oh, yes. Uh, but uh, to, to even think about the thought patterns and all the things that was going on in his mind is powerful. Well, morbid thoughts. He said, you know, Lord, take away my life. Uh, you know, and, and the reason why he was there is because he ran away to save his life because Jezebel threatened him. 
and he had reason to fear Jezebel. He had, she had killed all the other prophets of God, but he took off to save his life. And 30 days later, he's now saying, God, let me die. I have no purpose for living. Life is, is over with. And uh, that's depression. That's morbid thoughts. There's two school of thoughts in, in medicine. You have the pharmacology side, and then you have the natural side. I know that you're definitely a high promoter of the natural remedies of, of, you know, but people say like, you know, drink water and pray. Like, does that really work? Or is there room for, for medications? Should, should a young person listen to this who has gone to the doctor is depressed or is struggling with bipolar or discouragement, et cetera, and they are taking medications, should they feel guilty for that? No, there's no reason to feel guilty with medicines. Uh, we would, we would recommend that the medications be of such that they don't suppress the frontal lobe. And some of the medicines that are used um, commonly, not normally by psychiatrists, but are given by doctors who, you know, dabble in mental health, but don't necessarily understand it very well, are the benzodiazepines. And those things are short-term gain, long-term problems. This is your Xanax, your Valium, your Ativan, um, those sorts of things. Um, but the, one of the reasons why I'm an advocate of the natural approach is because it actually is superior. Um, the, the, the medication approaches can be helpful, um, short term, you know, the most commonly used medicines for depression are what we call selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And what they're doing is they're actually plugging the vacuum cleaners of the neuron that's releasing serotonin. And what that does is it allows more serotonin in the synaptic area. That's the area between those little neurons so that more serotonin could be there to help stimulate the next nerve there. And so that helps short term. But when you plug up the vacuum cleaners, you are eventually going to deplete the neuron of the very substance that you're trying to treat. And that's why six to nine months to maybe a year later, they're just as depressed and now they're on the medicine and now they're having to have higher doses. They're having to have more medicine. None of these medicines actually help us make more serotonin or dopamine or norepinephrine. They're actually blocking reuptake channels to help us in an indirect way short term where the natural approaches will actually improve our ability to make serotonin. They'll actually improve our receptors. They'll actually start taking care of the underlying defect that brought about depression to begin with instead of patching it up. And what is interesting is every, and this has been well studied, every place where antidepressants have become available, within two years the rates of depression go up significantly in that area. And so these, these really should be utilized more short-term until we take care of the underlying issues. They should be thought of as something that you're only going to take for six months or maybe less um, until we take care and eradicate it through more natural approaches. And that's how we might utilize these medicines. As a physician, I prescribe these medicines myself as well, depending on the case and certain conditions. Uh, but we really ought to be treating the underlying cause, and that's how we can completely eradicate it. Let's talk briefly about the some of the causes of depression, and then we're going to move on to some self-care and self-development. I know that I had friends that had gone through a lot of traumatic experiences, and that was one eye-opening experience that I had to understand that it's not just a, a faith, lack of faith, or et cetera. There's actually, it's almost like your brain is a physical organ, which it is, that, that can be damaged, like if somebody stabbed you or punched you or cut you, et cetera. Exactly. Give some examples of 
things that, you know, might happen to a person that added together can literally make your brain not able to think properly. Well, brain trauma in and of itself, you know, there's a reason why we have a, uh, a hard um, shell around this organ that's a little better than the consistency of cottage cheese. It's a very soft organ and uh, it can get inflamed very quickly. So, you know, even an automobile accident um, where you hit your head or you have a whiplash injury, that brain can actually be shoved against these where our sharp sinuses are. And of course, our sinuses are there so, so that we have resonance in our voice. They're there for a good reason. But on the inside of things, there's, there's kind of some sharp areas there. And so when we get traumatized, we'll break up the microcirculation. And then inflammatory cells come in to try to repair all of that. And they're having to release their toxins to get rid of the inflammation. And that in and of itself can bring about depression and anxiety and those sorts of things. And so we have to treat that with some natural anti-inflammatory. This is where the flaxseed and the spinach and the omega-3 things come in is at post-brain trauma because that will get rid of the inflammation far quicker and will help to um, normalize the process. What about some uh, emotional trauma, et cetera, that might happen to a person that can cause those things? Oh, yes. Emotional trauma can as well, particularly when we've experienced trauma that's above our ability to handle. You know, when we're young, for instance, if we have had, you know, abuse and layers of abuse and those sorts of things, uh, it can be very traumatic. Even in adulthood, you can undergo traumas that you really weren't prepared for. And um, that can be emotional wounds that require a set of healing processes. In fact, this is one of our major emphasis in depression is to help people to undergo through the five, um, normally there's five layers of steps of being able to be healed through emotional wounds, depend on the type of wound. And then there's different types of wounds. There's, we classify them in six different ways. And uh, just like every wound of, a, of the body is not treated the same, it depends on the type of wound and all of that. And in fact, some treatments for wounds are going to make um, that wound worse if you don't know exactly what wound you're treating and you just give a generic treatment, it can make it worse. And the same is true with our emotional wounds. It's not just one you know, those five fixes for every emotional wound. And so it depends on the type of wound. And then we can actually undergo emotional healing through those tasks, which empowers our participants greatly because often they think they just have to be a victim. And this is the way they're going to be because of this trauma. But they, when they realize there actually is healing, um, it empowers them significantly. I think that's beautiful because in, in Chronicles, uh, it says that if we pray and ask God, he will heal our land or heal our heart. It's a yes, beautiful promise It is uh, that he can do that. Let's uh, step back into our, our beginning quote here. Um, and that was that self-development is a, a duty uh, to both God and man as a Christian. Um, I know you are a doctor. You had to study. You had to become better at your craft, et cetera. Where does that fall in place? And what are some things that as a young person we can do to become better, uh, more efficient, more uh, uh, able to not only do life, but also be a witness? Well, uh, where, where can we start? There's a, there's a whole lot of things that we can do to help um, with this whole development aspect of things. One of the simple things is actually working with our hands in three dimensions. 
you know, our brains actually in the whole development process, I don't know if you've seen infants when they're awake and they're lying on their back, they're really kind of helpless um, creatures. But uh, the Lord implanted them with natural physical therapy. Their hands and, and feet are moving all over the place, and it's, uh, you know, nobody's doing anything to them, but all that natural physical therapy is actually helping them with their brain development. Now, as adults, we don't naturally do those things, but we're supposed to have a frontal lobe uh, that tells us that this is actually good um, for our brain development. And actually where our hands are centered in particular is the back portion of our frontal lobe. So even the act of washing the dishes, not by putting the dishes in the dishwasher, but actually <laughs> washing them. Uh, yeah, I, I call those dishwashers actually frontal lobe suppressors that are in every kitchen. Uh, and uh, we can actually do an activity of 20 minutes a day, 30 minutes that will actually help our brains. Uh, and so gardening, um, you know, even playing tennis, uh, you know, things that we're doing um, physically um, is going to help optimize our brain receptors help our dopamine levels, help us on a lot of different um, uh, levels. And uh, this is something that in today's society with all of these screens being prominent is one of the reasons why we're seeing such skyrocketing rates of depression and anxiety among our youth. Uh, when we're working on screens in two dimensions, that is not anything that's really helping our frontal lobes uh, per se. And just watching series of images on YouTube or those type of things, it might bring short-term satisfaction, but long-term, it's not actually doing very good things as far as our ability to focus, concentrate. Uh, it's not helping our serotonin levels. It actually is, is worsening our melatonin levels at night. Uh, and so uh, this is one of the reasons why we are now seeing 60% of our college students today having a diagnosable mental illness off the charts over what it used to be generations ago. One thing that I've always believed is important but yet struggle with so much is the whole idea of going to bed early and sleep and how that helps in efficiency, et cetera. Maybe can you give us a story or an illustration on how you decided to be intentional about guarding sleep and how that helped your brain and helped you be more efficient in life and also ministry. Yeah, interestingly, studies have shown us that early to bed, early to rise actually helps more for our brain performance than, than antidepressants or any pharmaceutical agents or those sorts of things. In fact, um, uh, one study called it better than Prozac. You take a late night person and then change them into early to bed, early to rise. And what that does is it doubles our output of melatonin at night. And uh, that helps us to remember what we have learned that day, and it helps us to apply it better. So it's going to help on the IQ side of things. And it also helps the emotional uh, aspect of the brain. And so when I began to learn about how uh, sleep efficiency is very important, and I was in uh, a pre-medical institution where I was uh, that semester I was taking organic chemistry, I was taking foundations of biology, physics for scientists and engineers, and quantitative analysis, which is an advanced um, general chemistry course because I had had general chemistry the year before. Uh, that, I was in school all morning and in labs every afternoon, and my pre-med advisor said, you don't want to do this because you're going to end up um, you know, not being able to get A's in all of these subjects. But I decided I was going to change my bedtime. 
as a result of learning this. I had normally gone to bed at 11.30 at night and um, gotten up at around 6.30 or so. And because of the sleep efficiency aspect of things, I've committed to going to bed at 9 o'clock. And I would get up at 3.30 or 4. And it turned out that I was actually getting far better melatonin. My sleep, um, restorative sleep was better. And my focus was just incredible, particularly in those morning hours. So I went to school in the morning, labs in the afternoon. I worked in the evening, actually, up until right before 9 o'clock every night. And my only time to study was in those early morning hours. And I would still go out and I would run three miles after studying. And I would shower and eat breakfast and make it to my 7.30 a.m. class. But with those um, few um, hours of study every morning for all of those subjects, I ended up doing better than I had the previous year with easier subjects and ended up getting a 4.0 and then ended up keeping with that pattern all the way through um, my uh, scientific uh, pre-medical uh, biochemistry career as well as um, my medical school um, career. And so I think I was the only one in my class that it. 8.30, I was telling them all bye-bye, and they'd say, why are you doing this? You know, we've got this test. There's, you don't know it any better than we do. Uh, but the next uh, day afterwards, they'd be amazed at how my scores were far different than theirs, but it was because of, of the sleep aspect of things. And um, sleeping smart is what it can be called. One, one question here. Many times we – there's a lot of worldly philosophies out there, and you think of brain development, self-development, um, self-awareness, et cetera comment real quick on the importance of the Bible and how legitimately awesome the word of God is to help develop the brain and to, and to advance uh, us and our ability to help other people. Yeah. Well, and this has been well um, documented, but if we actually uh, study the word of God, uh, particularly in an, in an analytical way where we're looking for promises and we're also looking for commands and then if there's a story that illustrates the principle, and the Bible is great on this, there's some great stories in there that illustrate all sorts of principles, you have got the greatest makeup for enhancement of the frontal lobe of the brain. And when you combine that with prayer, when you see a promise, I recommend actually claiming that promise out loud to God in prayer. You know, Jesus, who was a great uh, person who took advantage of this every day, you know, he was a prayer warrior, uh, he actually, um, and of course, if he needed the prayer, how much, how much do we? But he said to go into your closet so that you could pray out loud. If we pray out loud, it keeps us focused. A lot of Christians lose their focus in these silent prayers. But if you're praying out loud and you claim a promise out loud and you see it and you claim it out loud, and then if you see a command, ask God if you're in compliance with that command and read it and just ask God, am I in compliance with that? You might think you are, but then he'll convict you otherwise. And what happens to the frontal lobe of the brain in a 30-minute experience by that? And by the way, you can pray for 30 minutes easily. The time will go by quickly when you do it in that way. Um, you'll actually feel far better than you ever felt watching your most favorite movie. Uh, you'll feel far better than virtually any activity that you could choose from. But you not only feel better, you actually know that you've become a better person as well, uh, which those other activities, you don't really feel like you've become a better person at all. You might have had some sort of emotional experience watching your favorite movie, but you really haven't become a better person. 
in, in closing, young people, obviously adults and young people, but we're busy with school. We don't know what to do. We got to work. We, we don't know our futures. It's all, all these different things, relationships, and we're discovering the world, et cetera. You might say, I don't have time for devotions. I don't have time for self-development. I don't have time to read other extracurricular books that would help in this area. I don't have time to exercise. I don't have time or whatever. Uh, appeal to the young person. Appeal to the listener of this show um, why it's so important and the benefits of being intentional about self-development. Well, I talk about the big three. And if you do not have time for adequate sleep, if you don't have time for adequate physical exercise, and if you don't have time for a devotional life, you are going to become a skewed, imbalanced person. Those are the three areas where we know that balance will occur. And so if we are doing those three things and we're doing those three things consistently, expect to have your brain starting to be very optimized and it's going to pay off in wonderful dividends. But if you don't have time for one or two of those things, you're going to end up losing a whole lot of time because your imbalance is going to cause a lot of self implosions and you're going to end up with all sorts of unintended consequences coming your way. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to hit subscribe and share this episode with your friends. To learn more, check us out at learnandsharepodcast.com.